So I will be talking about one of the most controversial and neglected topics in effective altruism or in doing good. Um, wild animal suffering. So for me, it starts basically um, with the following line of reasoning. Um, we have in effective altruism our first focus area, improving human well-being. Uh, well um, the strategy is economic development, uh, saving human lives. But then there's a small uh, uh, voice in my head saying like, okay, you can save lives, but those people will eat meat. Eh? And we know economic development will increase meat consumption. Um, so that's, um, we have to counteract this kind of negative side effect if we save lives or uh, increase development. So we go to our second focus area, avoiding suffering of uh, livestock animals. Um, strategy is of course reducing consumption of animal products, uh, promoting veganism and things like that. But now there's a second voice in my head saying like, okay, um, but the environmental food, ecological footprint of meat is much higher than uh, vegan protein sources, uh, plant-based protein um, requires less land. So if we would switch to a vegan diet, we will have more nature, huh? um, unless we destroy all nature. Um, but now, okay, is this good? Uh, do we know if... Um, improving, increasing the, um, the uh, area, natural habitats. Um, is this a good thing? Um, well, we do not really know, but there is al already a quite a lot of um, animal suffering in wild nature. Um, so that raises the second question. Um, we, it's possible that we might even increase suffering by increasing natural habitats. Uh, so what do we do then? Uh, the third focus area would be decreasing wild animal suffering. Um, so that's the topic of uh, this presentation. Um, and then what is the strategy? Um, well, people always ask, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Uh, um, well, a starting point is um, start with scientific research for safe and effective interventions to improve wild animal um, well-being start with scientific research. That's the intervention that we have to do now. Um, we are not going to directly intervene um, in nature and separate the lines from the zebras or things like that. Um, no, start with scientific research. Um, well, let's look at first uh, the, yeah, of the prioritization uh, criteria. Um, so how big is the problem, how tractable is the problem, and so on. If you look at how big the problem is, well, if you look at wild animal suffering, there's a, the intensity of suffering can be huge. So suffering from disease, starvation, parasites, predators, um, injuries, venomous bites. The next slide I will show will contain some cruel images, so if you're sensitive to that, um, don't look. Um, there's these kind of things happening. Okay, that's, uh, it's gone. <laughs> So it can be very serious. When I imagine having those kind of parasitic infections or so, I think I will be scared <laughs> enough. Um, and I guess the animals also don't like it. Uh, next to intensity, we have the scope. How many animals are involved there? Um, here you can see the numbers. Uh, let's say humans, that's about uh, 10 billion. Uh, then the terrestrial vertebrates, farm animals. Uh, that's an order of magnitude higher. 
Uh, but then if you look at the wild animals, the wild mammals, um, that's even one or two orders of magnitude higher. Um, the birds again, amphibians, and then the fish, it's even more orders of magnitude higher. Um, for fish, it's pretty certain that they are likely to feel pain and things like that. Then we enter the arthropods and the copepods. It's uncertain if they can feel pain. Let's say you give it probability 10%. But if you look at the numbers, um, that's, I don't know how you pronounce it, 10 to the 19th, that's quadrillion or something. <laughs> um, it's enough, okay? It's pretty much. Even if you think that's 10% probability that they can suffer, then the expectation is um, very high. So the importance, the scope of the problem is really huge. Yeah? There is only one area that is bigger and that's the far future. Um, but if you're concerned about the individuals who are in affected now, if you have in population ethics this kind of person affecting view, like we should help um, the people um, who already exist and um, have preferences to be helped. Um, well, in that sense, um, wild animal suffering is probably the biggest problem. Um, then we have tractability and neglectedness. With neglectedness, it's very simple. It's strongly neglected, um, more neglected than um, artificial intelligence, safety research, or things like that. It's probably the most neglected field in effective altruism and in doing good in general, I guess. Um, it's even neglected within the community of animal rights activists, um, even people who are really concerned about animal welfare and animal rights, even within these communities, this area is um, until now still pretty neglected. But then the basic question is what about the tractability? Can we solve this problem? Um, and here the idea is again, we should start with scientific research. Um, we have to investigate um, the tractability. Huh? Can we safely, effectively intervene or First question, can we, um, if we study this kind of research, can we find out if it's tractable or not? Yeah. Um, of course, if it's not tractable, then we can stop with um, doing something about it. But we, no one uh, um, can tell now at this moment that it's definitely not tractable and it will never be tractable. So we have the value of new information when we do research, uh, um, finding out if it's tractable. This, there's a huge value of information. Yeah? If we have this research and we find um, new ways, um, yeah, that's um, very valuable. So what is this basic idea? Um, well, what we would promote is a kind of new academic discipline, a research discipline, uh, welfare biology. You can compare it with conservation biology. That's also an academic discipline founded a few decades ago when people, biologists, start to realize like, okay, um, biology is a science, of course, objective science, but we have a conservation crisis, a uh, um, species extinction. Now we, uh, um, can we use our biological knowledge to look for effective interventions to protect biodiversity? Yeah. The value is biodiversity, and then the academic discipline is conservation biology. Now, if you do it the other way around and say, like, our value is now well-being, animal well-being, um, for example, um, 
then we can start a new scientific um, discipline, welfare biology. Yu Kuang is uh, most known um, 20 years ago. Um, he wrote a famous article that started this idea of finding a new discipline. Studying the most effective and safe methods to intervene in nature to improve wild animal well-being. That's the topic. Um, and why this is important? Um, well, if you look at um, basically the biggest ecological problem, I would say, and the most important, one of the most crucial things that we should know about the world is this thing called our selection. Does anyone um, have heard about our selection? Was heard about it? Our selection? For whom is it new? Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> So for me, this is one of the most important effects in the world, if you want to do good. Um, this R selection, the R refers to uh, one of the parameters in um, population growth of um, wild species. So there is this uh, logistic equation, the population growth, um, and it's kind of an S-shaped curve. Uh, it starts low and then the population increases and then it levels off. Um, the R, it's the rate of growth parameter or the rate of reproduction, yeah, how many offspring. Um, and the faster, um, the higher this rate, the, the faster um, this initial um, slope will be, yeah. And then there's another parameter that you see in the equation, that's uh, the capital K, it's from the German uh, carrying capacity. Um, that measures how big the um, optimal population level will be. Yeah? Um, when you reach this maximum, how many individuals can survive the carrying capacity of the Earth, you know? Um, and what happens in nature in evolution is, um, very roughly speaking, species can, they reproduce, but this kind of reproduction, they can choose between two kinds of strategies. On the one hand, on the left, you have the R reproduction strategists. They get a lot of offspring, a lot of children, most of them dying at an early age. Um, only a few of them will survive. Yeah, so that's one thing. Um, the good thing is you have a lot of offspring, but it's also a big investment to have a lot of offspring yeah? because most of the children die. And then on the far right, you have um, um, individuals. Humans are mostly known for this. We are K selection species. Uh, for us, we have only a few offsprings, but most of our children survive until reproductive age. Yeah. And even for humans, we are pretty unique in the world, um, perhaps the only species. Um, for every adult, on average, there's all, all, uh, roughly one child. Yeah. And this child becomes an adult. Yeah. That's pretty unique. That's nice. That's very nice, actually. <laughs> um, to have this kind of um, everyone can survive until um, old age. And yeah, you have everything in between. Um, but the thing is, most animal species have are tended towards this R selection. Yeah. Um, and you can ask, for example, um, um, yeah, what would the life look like of an average animal in the world? Um, here you see uh, on the horizontal axis, um, the um, when you die, the percentage of your maximum lifespan, and um, vertical axis, that's the number of survivors. So we we are a case selection species. We have a maximum lifespan, let's say 100 years, and 
most of us are um, dying close to this maximum lifespan. Yeah, so we are getting very old. Yeah, but then most of the other animals are our selection uh, species, so they also have a maximum lifespan. But most of the animals do not even come close to this maximum lifespan. They die on a very early age. Yeah, um, and now you can. I think tonight in, in your bed when you can't sleep, <laughs> um, you can try to look like what would this um, life look like if you have a long, if you would have a long lifespan, but your life is very short, let's say one day, and you would, you can live 10 years, but your life is one day. How ma many positive experiences would you have and how many negative experiences would you have if you have a very long life expectancy but you actually live one day when you think about it most people who do were doing the exercise would come to the conclusion probably um it will be this short life of one day it will be dominated mostly by negative experiences hunger and parasites and predation and things like that um and that what might mean that um well at least there is a probability i would say higher than 10% or so, probability that most lives on this planet are lives not worth living in the sense that suppose you die and you reincarnate and you have the choice between reincarnating as an animal sentient being or not reincarnating, like you reach nirvana, um, what would you choose? Huh? Um, probably you would prefer not being born again. Um, for example, um, you can say like, I, Everything is nice in, in nature. When I walk in the park, I hear the birds um, whistling and so on. Um, but for every bird that we see, you know that um, one bird lays uh, more than 10 eggs during his or her life. Um, and then what happens with, let's say, 10 eggs, um, 10 um, chickens, um, chicklets? Um, how many of those baby birds are dying? Yeah? Nine out of 10 die as a baby <laughs> um, and only one of those birds will survive until adulthood so we know for every bird that we uh, hear whistling um, what are the lives of the other birds that could not survive they die um, you don't see them because they are eaten they are decomposed um, eaten by worms or uh, um, so we don't see them yeah we have a kind of when we look at nature survivorship bias we only see the survivors the majority of animals we don't see the majority of animals being born huh? we don't see them so that's why we haven't too optimistic uh, um, appraisal of um, the situation of nature um, now why is this a neglected topic um, this is one of my um, let's say research areas um, I'm an animal rights activist, and even when I raise this question amongst uh, in the animal rights conferences, for example, um, I often hear arguments, fallacies, logical arguments, cognitive biases. Um, so um, that's really amazing that even animal rights activists um, neglect this problem. Um, even when they claim to be anti-speciesist animal rights activists, when it comes to wild animal suffering, they will become speciesist again, for example. Why is this so? Well, one of the um, problems that we face, the cognitive biases, is scope neglect. Um, that's uh, an example President 
presented before. Um, suppose you on the, this side, you receive a letter that you can save 2,000 birds in oil spill. How many dollars or euros are you willing to give? Um, and you receive the same letter, only difference one zero extra. So you can save 20,000 birds and the same oil spill. Um, if you would give um, 80 dollars, how much are you willing to give? I can imagine that you don't have 10 times as much, so perhaps not 800. But according to this experiment, about the same, or even in this case, a bit less, um, 78 dollars. That doesn't make any sense if you can save more lives. Um, another fallacy is, um, yeah, this idea that natural equilibrium maximizes well-being. Um, now, this is kind of uh, related to status quo bias. A uh, very interesting, uh, interesting article written by uh, Nick Bostrom and Toby Ort, um, two famous effective altruists. Um, you can do this kind of thought experiment. Um, imagine that, let's look at uh, the horizontal level, that's a uh, level of competition or the level of predation in nature. Um, let's take predation, okay? Um, we know predation harms animals, eh? and the lion eats zebras, okay? And then I'm going to say, um, Okay, let's decrease uh, the number of lions. Eh? Um, and then there's a lot of protests. No, the lions uh, are harmed and so on, and it causes also suffering. Um, okay, um, why not increase the, the level of predation? Why not reintroduce genetically uh, genetic modification, create new predator species, and release them into the wild? So increase the level of predation uh, by huh? increasing. Uh, um, adding new predators in the world. Um, if you believe that decreasing the level of predation would decrease well-being, then, okay, the, the reverse would be, um, this is called the reversal test, the reverse would be increasing the level of predation. And then you're gonna say, no, that's also not a good idea, more predation means more animals being killed and hunted, that's also not good. Um, so that also decreases um, overall well-being in the world then that would mean that the current level of predation or the natural equilibrium level of predation would be the level that maximizes overall well-being of all animals. Um, now, as we know, um, nature doesn't care about well-being. Um, nature has no preferences, no goal direction, and especially not is not concerned about well-being. So the current level of predation is purely by accident. Um, it would be... Uh, strong coincidence if this current level of um, predation would be the one that maximizes well-being. It's like if you have a topographical map of a mountain area and you randomly pick a point, chances are very low that you pick a mountain top. Yeah? Um, and the same with your, the same with level of competition. Competition causes suffering, so okay, let's decrease competition, and then the environmentalists say, no, that's not a good idea. Okay, let's do the reverse, let's increase competition. And they say, oh no, no, that's also not a good idea. Okay, but why is the current level of competition in nature the one that maximizes well-being? If you can't explain that, you have a bias, a status quo bias. Um, another fallacy is, of course, um, we cannot solve all this wild animal suffering, the problem is too big. Yeah? That's a very weird argument, because we as effective altruists, the bigger the problem, the, the, the better it is <laughs> to work on. But here they say, no, it's too big, um, so we shouldn't do anything about it. Um, here we have another kind of um, 
cognitive bias. Um, suppose on your side here, you have to um, choose but, um, the side. Well, if you have the problem of factory farming, um, let's say we can eliminate factory farming. Um, and of course, that reduces the problem of factory farming with 100%. You can completely eliminate this problem. And then um, you have another choice, um, decrease wild animal suffering. Um, let's say we have a specific intervention, let's say one vaccine or, uh, um, that you can give to all animals. Um, a welfare intervention, but this only reduces wild animal suffering with 10%. Um, yeah. um, now, um, most people would prefer um, working on problem A because that's a problem that you can completely eliminate. Yeah. Uh, whereas working on problem B might seem more futile, like yeah, it's only a few percent decrease of this problem. Um, but we as effective altruists, we have to compare the total reduction of suffering. And so we can look at this uh, kind of curve. Um, so on the horizontal axis, that's the actual amount of suffering of these two problems. Um, and on the vertical axis, there is kind of the perceived badness of um, this suffering. And what this means is um, you have a kind of um, convex um, curve. Normally, it should be a straight line. The more suffering, the um, worse it is. Uh, um, it double suffering, double bad. <laughs> um, but here, um, eliminating problem A. So problem, let's say problem A causes one unit of suffering, and you can eliminate it from one to zero. Yeah? And problem B, that's the wild animal suffering thing. Um, it causes 100 units of suffering, and you can reduce it from 100 to 90. So this 10% reduction. For us, rationally, yeah, um, effective altruists, we would prefer working on problem B because that's 10 units of suffering uh, less. Um, but people, the, the perceived badness of suffering is different. And if you see on the vertical bars, uh, um, it looks like working on problem A is more um, yeah, worth it. Um, so this is called futility thinking, and it's related to all these other cognitive biases, certainty effect, zero risk bias, and things like that. So that's also an, an important cognitive bias that we have. Um, another argument that I hear a lot, uh, um, given by animal rights activists, is um, if we intervene in nature, um, that violates the autonomy of animals, okay? And me personally, one autonomy, yeah, um, that's very crucial. Of course, if the animals themselves prefer not being, not having this feeling of hunger, um, respecting their autonomy would mean um, avoiding their um, starvation. Um, so I strongly value autonomy um, of animals. Um, but what the animal rights activists um, cannot explain is where the autonomy is of this rat captured by a snake. Yeah? Um, I mean, um, they care about the autonomy of pigs uh, in cages yeah, where you can't move. But in nature, um, well, this rat cannot move in any way <laughs> and then will die. Okay, um, where's the autonomy of this animal? And it's not only one rat, but for one snake, there are hundreds of rats um, losing their autonomy. Um, but then they say, yeah, okay, but this predation that's necessary for the predators, um, and therefore, if it's necessary, um, it is allowed. Um, 
Sometimes they say like snakes and lions, they have no uh, moral reasoning capacity, so therefore they are allowed to hunt. Um, I would say, well, that's not fair because, um, yeah, um, what if we have smart lions or especially with dolphins, it might become very tricky. Probably dolphins have a kind of proto-morality. Probably we can learn to speak with dolphins like if they are children, um, age of six years or so. Probably they could understand uh, the notion of well-being um, and they hunt fish, okay? Um, so imagine you have the smart dolphins, are they allowed to hunt or not? Um, that's very tricky, but anyway, um, Still then, for dolphins, eating fish is uh, necessary to survive. Um, now, one predator eats hundreds of prey animals. Um, so that is permissible, according to many um, animal rights activists. What is not permissible is a kind of reverse. Um, the organ transplantation dilemma. Suppose you have five patients in the hospital and you can sacrifice one innocent person and with five organs you can save the lives of, okay. What's happening is basically the same as so, um, uh, we, for example, a lion, the mother lion kills a prey animal and feeds um, the body tissue of the prey to her cubs. Yeah? Um, and here uh, the surgeon kills um, an innocent, individual and use the body parts, feed the body parts into the bodies of the patients, yeah? The five cups, the five patients. Um, and here it's uh, basically in the reverse. One person can save five people, yeah? But one line is allowed to say uh, to kill hundreds. That doesn't make any sense. That's really illogical. Um, Another argument is um, an argument that I had before, and I consider this as my worst moral mistake. I did a PhD in moral philosophy about animal rights, and I kind of defended the predation problem, um, that lions are, uh, that this was still allowed because this is kind of natural behavior. It contributes to biodiversity, and biodiversity is valuable, and, and intrinsic value of natural processes, and things like that. Um, so we speak about natural integrity, biodiversity, naturalness. Um, I gave intrinsic value to nature, but now I realize that, okay, um, we have an ecosystem with lions and, and animals and so on. I can give intrinsic value um, to biodiversity of this ecosystem. So I value biodiversity. And on the other hand, I can also give intrinsic value, for example, to your well-being. I care about your well-being, yeah? <laughs> Lucky for you, but well, for <laughs> you as well. <laughs> um, I care about your well-being. Um, now, the thing, of course, is that uh, nature itself um, doesn't care at all about biodiversity, doesn't experience biodiversity loss, for example. Yeah? On the other hand, um, if I don't value your well-being, at least there is someone else, namely your, you, yourself, you value your own well-being. And as an altruist, I want to do what the others really want. Yeah? I want to do what nature wants, but okay, nature does not have brains and no consciousness, so doing what nature wants is kind of trivial. <laughs> um, doing what sentient beings want, who have preferences, feelings, well-being. Huh? You want well-being, okay, then uh, improving well-being is good. That's this kind of uh, uh, um, idea. Two minutes left? Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> um, 
this kind of this burning museum dilemma. Um, I prefer um, aesthetic value of paintings, and then there's Mona Lisa burning, um, or and you can and there's a child in the museum who I'm I'm going to save, uh, save the child or save the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa itself doesn't care about uh, being burned by the flames and doesn't care about um, aesthetic value and things like that. The child um, cares about not being burned by the flames, cares about well-being. Um, so when I would save the Mona Lisa, my, I would say that my preference for aesthetic value dominates the preference of the child for well-being. The same with biodiversity. If I would say the lions are allowed to hunt and can do whatever they want for biodiversity reasons, um, then I would impose my own preference for biodiversity above the preferences of all wild animals. Yeah. Um, yeah, other fallacies that we do not have a responsibility, um, um, no duty, uh, because we do not cause this problem of wild animal suffering. Well, for animal rights activists, doesn't make any sense because they do not eat uh, meat, but still they want to do something against factory farming, although vegans are not responsible for factory farming. Um, other fallacies, there is a difference between suffering caused by humans and non-humans. This is literally said by anti-speciesist animal rights activists. We have to make a difference between suffering caused by humans and suffering caused by non-humans. Now, if you have a moral rule that explicitly refers to humans, then and they cannot justify this rule, why um, it's explicitly referring to humans, then it's itself a kind of speciesist rule. Yeah, It's very ironic that you hear Anti they claim to be anti-species, but here they make the same mistakes again. Yeah, and then we have a whole list of fallacies. These are arguments given by animal rights activists, but I translated them like uh, the lion are allowed to hunt the zebra, and I simply changed the word, the word zebra into child. Um, um, and then see if anti-species would be indifferent between changing um, different... Um, yeah, the, the, the species. Huh? So whether it's a human prey animal or a zebra prey animal, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, and then the animal rights activists say, yeah, but uh, zebras have to die of something. That's what they literally said. But if you translate like humans have to die of something, then they disagree again. <laughs> so it's very amazing that um, yeah, we are so vulnerable to all these kind of fallacies. Uh, yeah, that's it.